I have a, uh, I have a confession uh, to make, and it's kind of a serious confession. Uh, and listen, if, if you want to leave our church after I say this, um, if you just feel convicted by the Spirit um, that, I, that I'm about to confess something to you that it might make you feel uncomfortable, I get it. <clears throat> so here it is. I don't like Chick-fil-A. I know. I, just wave nicely as you walk out the door. Like, I get it. Uh, I get it. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's just chicken. Like, I mean, it, it really is. It's chicken with some semi-literate cows. I mean, I mean that's, that's what it is. I mean, it, I mean I'm, I'm glad that you guys like it. It's just not, it's just not my favorite thing. Now, I, I, I understand, like, I, I think that Chick-fil-A is, is a good restaurant. I'm okay. I'm going to veto you if you say, hey, let's go to Chick-fil-A. I'm just going to say, hey, let's go somewhere else. It's just not my favorite place. Now, I will say that I absolutely love uh, their leadership. Like, the people who run that restaurant, at the very top level at least, and, and some at their, at their local level, of course. Um, so um, I, those people are fantastic. Uh, Dan, or the company is uh, founded by Truett Cathy. His son, Dan, uh, now runs it, and they are devout, godly men, uh, and they show that. Uh, they, they not only make chicken, uh, and they close their store on Sunday, and those are, those are good things. They, they live out uh, their Christian faith through their Christian family and also through their Christian business. They let Jesus, who lives in them, and they're very, very public about that. Jesus lives in them, and they allow that to affect their business uh, practices. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember this. This is a couple years ago uh, where Chick-fil-A got into some hot water uh, and, and they were on the public scene, a lot of news regarding Chick-fil-A, and you, I think you guys might have remembered this. And this is because they were branded as anti-homosexual or anti-gay. Uh, and by the media, it was a big hubble of blue. And here's where it comes from. Dan Cathy gave an interview, uh, an interview in a Christian magazine that probably none of you read and not a whole lot of other people read. But he gave an interview uh, to this Christian magazine in which he said this. We are very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We know it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord we live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles. Now, that statement blew up in the media. Great. So he was asked for another interview where he was asked to clarify his statement, into which he said this. I think we are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to define what marriage is all about. Now, 10 years ago, that statement, at least the first statement for sure, would have never made the news. No one would have ever known about it. Nobody would have picked it up. But our culture has changed. And there was some significant public backlash about this, mainly just because Kathy came out with a pro-family position. And in fact, it was a biblical position, a position that the majority of the world held for roughly 1,600 years. Now, furthermore, Chick-fil-A, you can be gay and work for Chick-fil-A. You're never going to be fired for being gay and working at Chick-fil-A. If you have a divorce, they said there are husbands of one wife, 
If you had a divorce, you would not be fired at Chick-fil-A. If, um, if for some odd reason uh, you were not a Christian and you worked at Chick-fil-A, you wouldn't be fired for that either. But for some reason, just because Dan Cathy took a pro-family position and pro-marriage position, that made him a bigot and hateful. At least that's how he was branded. And there was numerous government officials around the country uh, that wanted to publicly ban, because of this statement, publicly ban Chick-fil-A from even having a store in their city. Cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, all said that that Chick-fil-A was not welcome in their city because they were hateful and bigoted. Now, the Christian community response was also very interesting. Some of you might have been there, standing in line at Chick-fil-A on that week, I think just so that you could have more Chick-fil-A. But, I mean, mean, this huge support and encouragement, we love you, we're thankful for you, thank you for taking this stand. I mean, so, I mean, essentially you have the culture's response, which is like, we hate you, and then the Christian response is, we love you, and they're coming at each other, and they're kind of playing chicken with one another. Yeah, okay, I'll be here all week. Okay, so... Um, uh, so why was this such a big deal? This is such a big deal because our, our culture and, our, and the church have gradually been moving away from each other over time. And what has happened is that the church, or the voice of the church, is beginning to move farther out of the center of the culture and farther into what I'll call the margins, or the edge of culture. This has been happening gradually for the past 40 to 50 years. We're no longer at the center. And in some respects, like this one, we are outcasts in society. And so this is actually a pretty new development. I mean, this is, this is not old. I mean, this is, this is a pretty new development that we are on the outskirts of society. Now, I want, let's, let's roll with some history for a minute. So 2,000 years ago, we have Jesus Christ who comes along and he changes everything forever across the entire world. Splits time in half. His death, burial, and resurrection changed the world altogether and we are very thankful for that. Right? He had some followers. Twelve very inspired ones. He called the, uh, called the disciples or the apostles. And he had roughly about 120 people who followed him to the very end. Now, a blip on the radar of millions and millions of people who lived during that day. They would have never, nobody knew, nobody knew about Christianity. If you read in the Christian, if you read in history books, Christianity wasn't mentioned for a long time because there was, it was so minute, it was so small. It wasn't even, uh, to say that it was on the margins would be uh, kind of an overstatement. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely completely off the radar altogether. But over time, over the span of about 350 years, Christianity was growing tremendously, mainly because I believe that it was on the margins. In a lot of places, it was illegal. In a lot of places, you would have lost your life for being a Christian. But it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And roughly right at about 350 AD, Christianity was the majority position in the Roman Empire. Over 51% of the people in the Roman Empire were Christians. 31 million people in 350 years. So uh, this, there's this guy named the- Theodos, I'll say it right, Theodosius I, there he is. He's the emperor of Rome. He basically said, if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him. And what he did was he not only made Christianity legal, he actually made it the state religion. 
that you had to be a Christian in order to live in the Roman Empire. And he made it illegal to not be a Christian. And so this began what is called what we call Christendom, which has reigned for roughly about 1,600 years. And when you think about the Western world, you are actually considering uh, Christendom. Now, Christianity at this point, it started in the margins, about 120 people or so are off the radar. And now Christianity is at the center of society. Is no longer in the margins at all. Where it once thrived, it now is in the middle, and it began to get weak and soft and kind of purposeless. Christianity is what you had to do, not necessarily what you wanted to do. The grace-filled, joyous life just became what the state required of you. So on the surface, we might think, oh, you know, you know Christianity all over the world, that's a good thing. Not so much. Not when the state tells you that you have to be a Christian. And if you don't become a Christian, then you are going to be put to death or lose your freedom or something like that. You, are not so much, you don't so much come to Jesus as you are declared a Christian by the state. Um, and this is where we get professionalism and clergy. Uh, this, is, I mean, this is where you have people who are like the varsity team, right, who are professional full-time clergy members, people who really like, who really like spiritualism and they kind of make their money or make their living in this way. Uh, and so this is where you get the Holy Roman Empire. This is where you get the Pope. Uh, this is where you get the Crusades. Now, if you're wondering what, what, you know, what were the Crusades all about, the Crusades were about everybody had to be a Christian. It was mandated that you had to be a Christian. And so if you don't become a Christian, we're going to kill you. That's what the Crusades were all about. It's ugly. Now, fast forward the tape about 1,600 years, roughly, to present-day America. If you were to look at surveys, news agencies who do surveys, right, they're going to tell you that roughly 80% of America is so-called Christian if you were to survey them and ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I am. 80% of our country says that. Now, only 20% of our country actually goes to church one time a month. Only 10% of our, uh, uh, only 10% of our population reads the Bible one time a month. And only 5% on top of that actually would make some type of monetary gift. And in our culture, over 50% of our people who call themselves Christians believe it should be legal and accessible for someone to kill a baby in the womb. Tell me how that works. So we see this effect of this idea of Christendom, how we are kind of a Christian nation uh, in name only. And what we see with the the Chick-fil-A incident It's where we see this, our culture is gradually moving away from the church. And the church is, again, being pushed onto the margins. And I actually think that that's a great thing. Because when the church was at the margins, that's where it thrived. And what we see across the world is that where Christianity is illegal, where it's dangerous, it rapidly grows. It's completely different than what we might think. The church in China, it is estimated that there is 100 million people who are a part of the Christian church in China where it is illegal to be a Christian. Now, if you pay attention to the news, I think the last two weeks, uh, Vladimir Putin actually made it illegal for you to proselytize or evangelize people, tell people about Jesus in public in Russia. You had to be in a religious building. Now, all religious buildings are controlled by the state. So if if you cannot tell anybody about Jesus unless you are in in a religious building, which they control. Now, I guarantee you that in a few years, we're going to see reports 
about the church growing tremendously in Russia because it's being pushed onto the margins. So what does that mean for us? It's a good question. What does that mean for us? It means that we have to have a good bit of Christian courage. And I'm going to work through some of these things quickly. We're going to, we're going to walk through the book of Daniel real quick, okay? The book of Daniel. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn, in your, uh, turn your Bibles to Daniel. It's going to be a prophet in the Old Testament, roughly halfway, a little bit past halfway in your Bible. Uh, if, you're, if you have a version app or the Holy Bible app on your phone, you can follow along in the events section. We have our notes up there. We'd love for you to do that. We're going to look in Daniel chapter 6. Very familiar story about Daniel and the lion's den, okay? Daniel lion's den is a fun story, but I want to walk through because I think Daniel is going to give us some ideas about how Christian courage works or what I would call life on the margins. How are we to function as a church on the margins? Because that's exactly where Daniel was. Daniel was a Uh, was a slave in Babylon. He was in exile. He had been kidnapped, or his family had been kidnapped out of his homeland, which is Judah, or he was an Israelite. He had been kidnapped out, brought to Babylon, and made to be a slave of the emperor there. His name is Darius, or King Darius, okay? And he served the king. Now, over time, Daniel was a smart guy, and he he moved up the ranks a good bit. He started out as a lowly servant, then he got promoted and promoted and promoted uh, because he was so good at what he did. Eventually, he got to a place where he was actually second to only to the king. He was overseeing almost the entire empire, and he answered only to the king. Now, there's a ton of Babylonian folks who didn't like that very much, and they despised Daniel. And so we pick that up in Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read most of the chapter today. But what I want to do is I want to see five major acts of Christian courage that are going to help us as we live life on the margins, okay? So if you're taking notes, five acts of Christian courage we're going to see from the life of Daniel. The first one is devotion. So if you're taking notes, we, we're going to see devotion in the life of Daniel. Let's look at first the first three verses. It says this, it pleased Darius, the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now a satrap is like a governor or like a mayor, okay? To be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, and whom these satraps um, uh, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became, here it is, distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because the, of uh, an excellent spirit was in him. If you've got a Bible, underline that. There was an excellent spirit within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel had an awesome reputation. He worked hard. He didn't complain. Now, when last week we talked about Christ living in you, and we just allow, in obedience, we allow Christ to live out his life within us. Now, Daniel was obviously doing this. The God of the universe was living within him, and therefore it went, it, it kind of carried over to his work. You have a guy who worked really hard, and so his reputation was really good. His influence was awesome, and so he, uh, even though this verse was written long after him, he did this. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you might know this verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is something that Daniel did in the Babylonian Empire. Even though he wasn't at home, he was making best of what he were, of where God had him at the time. And so when we work, when we're at our workplaces, our reputation matters. How hard we work? Do we, do we complain? Do we not? Do we have a good reputation? Are we lazy? Are we complaining? Are we unfaithful people in our workplaces? 
Or do we have people that we, do we live life uh, in deep devotion in our workplaces, in our communities, in our families? Are we respected and do Christ see, I'm sorry, do people see Christ in us when we work because of the devotion that we have? Okay, that's what we see in Daniel's life. Number two, number two, we see integrity. We're going to see integrity. It's a long portion of the scripture, but I want to read, uh, I want to read this uh, out loud. Here we go. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. That's a great passage. Then verse 5. Uh, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What a great passage. Verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and, and prefects and satraps, the counselors and governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance in, to enforce an injunction that, w- that whoever pay, makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Here it is. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Then these men came up by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign the injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said that the thing stands fast and according to the law of Medes and Persians without any, uh, without, and cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. I love the beginning portion of that scripture where it says that they could find no fault in Daniel, and so they had to figure out a way that they didn't like him because of the commands of his God. Is that not the Chick-fil-A story? So it was like, we can't find anything wrong with this restaurant or the way that they do business, so we're going to go after their theology, what they believe. This is life on the margins. And what we see in Daniel's life is we see that he knew it. He knew that it was illegal for him to pray and petition God. Yet he was going to do it anyway. What we do in public should be what lines up with us in private. That's the essence of integrity. And so when we live our lives, the value of our character is what happens when no one's looking. It's what you think in your brain when no one can, think, no one can know your thoughts. It's what you watch on television or on your computers, gentlemen, when no one can see what's on there. It's what you do on a business trip when there's no accountability from your spouse. Parents, it's what you do with your children when there's no other parents around to watch you parent. That's integrity. That's integrity. And we see it in the life of Daniel. He was doing something in private, what he used to do in public, and it carried over. And they knew that they were going to catch him in that. Uh, and so he had that same conviction. So that's the second thing. So we have devotion, we have 
uh, integrity. And the third thing we're going to see is attraction or attractive. That Christian courage is attractive. Let's look at the scripture. It says in verse, in verse 14 and 15. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. So you, the king loved Daniel. He hated the fact that he was tricked into this. He labored and labored because he loved Daniel. He wanted to see him, like, redeemed. He didn't want to see Daniel going to the lion's den. He was so attracted to Daniel's personality, wanted to be his friend, desired to be around him. This is exactly what we see in our Lord Jesus. The picture of Christ is not one who, um, you know, people didn't like or, or, you know, only the religious people didn't like him, but pretty much everybody else did. And so what we see is that Jesus was all the time being invited to parties. He was at celebrations, weddings. The first miracle that we see where Jesus is turning water into wine is is at a celebration. He was was invited to a party. Jesus was likable. People were attracted to him. And when we show Christian courage of devotion and integrity, when we begin to show those things and let Christ live in us, people are going to be attracted to that. And they will desire relationship with us with us. Jesus was in the margins, and people were attracted to him because of that. So here we see, uh, fourth, we then see, because nothing could be done to reverse the order, Daniel goes into the lion's den. So number four, we see Daniel suffering well. We see him suffering well. Let's look at 16 through 18. It says this, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and, slept, and, and sleep fled from him. We see that he's suffering very well. You know, most of you know this, you might know the story of uh, Eric Liddell, okay? Uh, he was a, a famous Olympian. If you ever saw Chariots of Fire, okay? That movie, dun 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 you know, okay, right? That whole deal. Fam- most people just know him as a, as a famous Olympian, right? Uh, well, he, after he got done with the Olympics, he went to go be a missionary in China. And, uh, and the end of his life isn't really known uh, because he went to go be a missionary in China, spent time there uh, helping people, sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus. Uh, and also giving away food, teaching, training, all of these things. Now, in the early 1940s was not a good time to be in China because the Japanese were taking over that country. And little by little, uh, they, were being, they were taking land, taking land, taking land, until eventually Eric was put into an uh, a internment camp. He was put into prison. And, uh, and so there he lived for two, of his, uh, two years of his life, actually the end of his life. His family was back in Canada, and he was in an internment camp in China. And Eric was known for giving away all of his food to the other prisoners. In fact, in, 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 their, in, in that whole situation, in the whole internment camp, he, he became kind of their pastor. He was the person who shared Jesus with them the entire time. He would, he would smuggle food into the camp and make sure that everyone had food. This guy was suffering well. He desired to go home, I'm sure, there was many days 
but he was being persecuted for what he believed. And in the end, Winston Churchill actually secured uh, his transport out of the internment camp, and he gave it away to a pregnant woman and said, no, I don't need to go. This woman needs to go. And gave it away. He eventually died of a brain tumor uh, inside of the internment camp because he didn't get the medical care that he needed. This guy suffered well. And when we suffer well, folks, when we show Jesus through our suffering, it's going to be attractive to other people as we live out Christian courage. Fifth one, last one. This also leads to proclamation. It leads to proclamation. I am going to, you guys can read the rest of this chapter, but essentially what happens is, uh, essentially what happens is that Daniel obviously does not get eaten by lions. The king comes and rescues him out of that, uh, and he, you know, he spent the entire night with the lions, and he says that God has shut the mouths of the lions. They pull him out. Uh, the king has a little revenge, and he takes all those people who accused Daniel and throw them into the lions, uh, lion's den. They all get eaten. And then the king decides that he's going to proclaim Daniel's God He's going to give praise at the end of the chapter to Daniel's God. The proclamation by a pagan tongue. All this happened because Daniel had great courage. So ultimately, this is the kind of courage that we need, not silence. We have to live kind of like Daniel on the margins of society. We're going to sometimes be exiles. Um, and, and, and this is going to kind of fuel some, something within us. It's going to separate us a good bit. It's going to tell us that, hey, maybe, maybe you have to live more distinctly than the culture. It's going to be a little bit different. Now, we know this. We can live this way because Jesus, our Lord, lived his life and did the most important part of his work on the margins. Jesus didn't die a triumphant death in the middle of the city, in the middle of the culture. Jesus died as a criminal on the outside of town. And so when we live on the margins, we're living like Jesus. We're living on the outside where people desperately need us, where people are going to be attracted to us. So let's fight that position in our culture, okay? Um, So a couple things. How do we live this out? How do we figure this out? One way is, um, so on a micro level, we live this out individually, Okay, so we're going to live our lives with devotion, integrity, passion, attractiveness, proclamation. That's on a micro level. So as you think about your neighbors, the people that you have influence over, on a micro level, let's live out Christian courage in this way. Now on a macro level, a macro level is when we come together kind of synergistically as a church. That's why it's so important. The Bible tells us not to neglect the gathering of the church. Because when we take all these micro Christians and we take all of our individual domains, all of our influence, and we bring it together in one united front and it gives us a macro ability to live on the margins with some passion and devotion. So make sure you commit yourself. In in like a month or so, we're going to start our missional communities, and we're going to have an awesome opportunity for some major influence to make sure that we can live out this life on the margins in a big way. And we can live out this devotion, this integrity, this passion. And I believe that this community will be attracted to what Jesus has to to do within your life. It's going to be awesome. Let's pray together, uh, and we're going to close out our service in this way. I want you to pray and think through in what way, maybe out of those five points, in what way do I need to walk with the Lord closely in, this, in, that, in a particular area? Maybe it's integrity. Maybe it's devotion. Maybe the people in your life, in your community, or in your workplace, they don't see devotion in your life. 
they don't see Jesus being lived out through you. And maybe that's just something you've got to pray about and commit yourself to right now, right? And maybe you're not attractive, and you need to ask the question, why am I not attractive to those around me who are living on, who are living on the margins with me, okay? Let's pray together, and we'll commit ourselves in that way.